Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. I'm out in rural Nevada this week with reporter Jackie Valley working on an exciting new project. But fret not, as we have an episode that we recorded a week ago to play this week. Editor John Ralston sits down with reporter Megan Messerly to talk about the Indy's new endorsement tracker, how it works, and what it tells us about the candidate's performance in the state. After that, I talk with my colleague Jacob Solis about his recent story on automation and what it means for the job landscape in Nevada. Later, all four of us sit down and chat about Megan's new favorite video game, and John tells us about his early gaming days. But first, let's hear some indie newsreels from reporter Daniel Rothberg that he also read this week with our partners over at KUNR Reno Public Radio. From reporter Jasmine Orozco Rodriguez, research shows that not everyone is partaking in all the outdoor activities Nevada has to offer. White Americans make up almost three-quarters of people who participated in at least one outdoor activity in 2017 across the U.S. In response, a coalition is working to increase diversity in Nevada's outdoor industry by promoting a more inclusive image of outdoor activity and making spaces more accessible to all. The low levels of diversity in outdoor recreation have prompted the creation of various organizations, including Get Outdoors Nevada and Get Out Stay Out. The legislature also stepped in this year, creating a new outdoor recreation division that will work to increase access to Nevada's open spaces for community members who may have trouble getting outdoors comfortably. Data shows that Latinx participation outside has increased by an average of 1% over the last five years, while most other groups' participation has declined. Overall, about 49% of the population went on at least one outdoor outing in 2017. And now from Riley Snyder, counties and cities in Nevada spent nearly $4 million lobbying the 2019 legislature, according to a state report that found total lobbying spending by governments hit the highest amount in more than a decade, the report, which was compiled by the State Department of Taxation, is the product of a law that requires all local governments, everything from cities and counties to police departments, school districts, and hospitals, to disclose any expenditures above $6,000 on activities designed to influence the passage or defeat of any legislation. The $3.9 million spent on lobbying activities in 2019 marked the second highest spending totals reported since the disclosure law was passed in 2001. Leading the way are local governments based in and around Las Vegas, which accounted for more than 64% of the total governmental lobbying earlier this year. Washoe County accounted for a little more than a quarter of total lobbyist spending, while the state's 15 other counties accounted for less than 10% of the dollars spent to lobby state lawmakers. For KUNR News, I'm Daniel Rothberg with the Nevada Independent. All right, Megan, it's time to talk about our favorite subject, which is the 2020 campaign. Is that not our favorite subject? It is by far our favorite subject, and it's going to be for the next year, uh, we more will, than a year. We will not discuss what that says about us, uh, <laughs> that that's our favorite subject. However, my favorite subject of the moment is uh, uh, the newest indie feature. 
First, we came out thanks to you and our design team with the presidential candidate tracker, which if people have not checked out on the Indy site, they really should. Shows all of the places the, the, the candidates have been, counts up their visits, and talks about what, when, when they've announced visits, where they're coming. That took a lot of work. I think it's the best of its kind in the country. Now we've played a little bit of copycat. And we have a new feature. Why don't you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So in thinking about, you know, some of the elements that we wanted to display for folks on our election page, one of the things we're thinking about is endorsements and what's, you know, the best way to display endorsements. I mean, we, you know, you and I get these press releases from campaigns, sometimes with 20 names, you know, and for the average person looking at that list, like, what? it's hard to tell, right? Like, who are we supposed to care about? Do these matter? Is this a sign that candidates are gaining momentum in the state? So we wanted a way to make sense of that for folks. So we launched this um, endorsement tracker feature inspired by the one that 538 has. Um, and their system is there's a point value assigned to people, um, but depending on their position, you know, are they, uh, you know, governor, are they U.S. senator, are they a member of Congress? And we sort of took that idea and sort of made it Nevada specific. So, you know, ours takes into perspective whether it's current governor, senator, um, a former governor, are you a state lawmaker, are you a legislative leader, all the way down. So we have this wide range of different point values that folks can be assigned. And we, so we go ahead and list the, uh, the major endorsements on our page and then total how many points they have based on the system that we've developed. And just in case people don't, don't know, and, and we assume that some people are just getting introduced to 2020 through the Indy and through Indy Matters, the caucus here is on February 22nd. Nevada is an early state. Uh, uh, we, we, are, we are very important to these candidates. They've already made a bunch of visits here. We're not as well entrenched as the first two states, Iowa and New Hampshire. They've gone there a few more times. But this, this was a, a really a deliberative process in terms of the point values we were going to assign. And we hope people will go and look at the tracker and see what they think and give us their feedback, yay or nay, or somewhere in between. But it's inherently subjective assigning the, these points, right? It is. It's an inherently a difficult scale to come up with and figure out, okay, how are you going to say who's a, a 10 or an 8 or a 7 or a 1? You know, it's it, like you say, it's inherently subjective. But I think our goal was to give folks just a, a sense of what some of these endorsements mean. You know, it's not it's not perfect, right? But it, I think the goal is to give folks a, a sense of, you know, what some of the bigger ticket endorsements are that, that carry a lot of weight behind them. Like Governor Steve Sisolak hasn't weighed in. But if he does, that would be a, a big deal. And somebody gets 10 points for, for doing that. You know, it, it shows the relationships they've built in the state, you know, the, the, the confidence that the governor would have in that candidate. You know, so we've attempted to sort of parse for folks through these point values, some of the differences between who these folks are in the state and what kind of clout they have. It's hard to do that in and of itself. Of, of course, you would think a governor would have more sway than, say, a former city councilman. So you give that a higher point value. But even within uh, uh, th th those, those various categories, right, there might be some people who have more clout than others. So it's almost, I mean, we're not going to go 10, then 9.3, right. 9.15. Yeah. And I mean, that's just, it's, it's pointless. So we expect people not to be thrilled with every choice that we've made, but we think that it gives some kind of indication of, 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 of a certain kind of strength within the right. state, right? Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think that's sort of the overall goal. You know, there might be someone within a category and you say, 
no, I don't think they're a four. This person's a little bit more important. They should be a six, but by virtue of their position, it says they're a four. Um, and there's going to be folks who, who think they should be lower than that. And that, you know, that again goes back to the inherently subjective nature of this. But I, I think our goal is to have folks look and kind of be be thinking about the categories these folks fall into, you know, as they're reading through the tracker and trying to understand, you know, what the endorsements mean. Instead of we could just give you a, a list and say, you know, here here it is, like figure it out yourself. But I think our goal is to help folks make a little bit of more sense of that. And, and I think that even people who are going to vote in the caucus, it's different than the general election in this sense. By the time people vote in the general election for president, they don't – they're not going to be influenced by endorsers one way or, or, or the other. They will have made up their mind based on partisan impulses, issues, wh- wh- whatever it is. It's not going to matter who Steve Sisolak endorsed in the general election. But going into the caucus, when you have a very competitive democratic field where you have probably conventional wisdom would say six or seven candidates that write off, people can paint scenarios for them winning the nomination. And even though it's still some time to go before the the, the caucus, people may be influenced. Even people who are, you know, caucus goers are going to generally be more informed than regular voters because that's the very nature of the beast. It's going to be low turnout. But this could play a role Again, for people, if they look on the Indies tracker and see that so-and-so has endorsed Elizabeth Warren or Mayor Pete or, or Kamala Harris, well, OK, maybe I should take another look at that person, right? I mean, I think it could have a real-world impact. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, the, an endorsement isn't going to probably sway a, a diehard supporter of any one of these candidates, right, who already have their minds make up. But if you're honestly, you know, comes down to the day before the caucus and you're trying to figure out, who, you know, who's going to be number one, um, it could make a difference, right? You might look at the list and say, wow. Wow, six former or six lawmakers endorsed X candidate, and this other candidate doesn't seem to have a lot of support. I, you know, I don't know why that is, but there must be something that this candidate has done to inspire confidence, you know, among my elected leaders, and that could make a difference. And, and like you say too. Especially for sort of the average voter who maybe doesn't know who their state lawmaker is, that, that may not make much of a difference. But as you mentioned, these are the hyper engaged folks, caucus goers. You know, it's it's a commitment to go to the caucus. Um, so these do tend to be the involved folks who probably will know who their state lawmakers are, will know their record, will know do my policy priorities align with their policy priorities. So it really could make a difference. Obviously, this will be a constantly updating feature. Uh, as we get endorsements in, we will consider whether someone should be placed in a certain category. There are going to be a lot of endorsements, I think, that the candidates send us over in the emails that you mentioned earlier that we're going to just say, listen, we are – no offense to these people. We're not that interested in the third vice chair of a county party as mm-hmm. being a- important. I understand why these campaigns want to make it look like they have all these people. We're just not – some of these people just aren't going to make our cut. Yeah, that's that's true. And I, I think there's a difference, too. You know, you, you look at these lists and it does show support they have. But I, th- I think, again, the question comes down to so-and-so is a community activist. What what makes this community activist more prominent than that community activist, right? And, you know, everyone could, could put up these lists of their supporters and call everyone a community activist just to have a longer list than the next candidate. But, but I think the thing that we're looking at is okay, if, if you are an activist, you know, what have you done? What, what's kind of the impact that you have actually had? Are you involved in politics? You know, what sort of impact have you made? So we're not just looking for the title. We're looking for, you know, an understanding of the work this person has done and um, the position that they hold within the community. It's interesting, too, and people can take a look at this uh, right, right now and, and see what I'm, what I'm about to say is right. Is someone who's not doing that well in the polls, like Senator Harris, is, I, I believe, she, last I looked, and I know it's already been updated once, I think, I think she's second 
uh, right? In, she is. In, in, in the endorsement points. Yep. And you and I have talked here and, and elsewhere before about how she has hired some very smart people who understand Nevada, and, and she's been able to get the kind of endorsements where she's she's pretty close to Joe Biden, I believe, is first, right? Yeah, yeah. Joe Biden uh, right now on our tracker is 61 points, and Kamala Harris is at 44 points. So there's there's still a gap, but considering, I mean, what we've seen nationally, we've seen a consolidation, right, especially of elected officials behind Joe Biden. So it's not surprising that he would be in the lead here. Um, you know, but she does have a sizable number of endorsements. She has the support of uh, several state lawmakers here, three state senators and an assemblywoman. So she has been able to build some of these relationships here in the state, which, which, like you mentioned, she has a, a smart team here. She has folks who know Nevada, both on her state team here and at the national level. And so I think her endorsements sort of speak to that team that she's built as well. And, and we, we want to emphasize that we, we don't think that this is going to be determinative. Uh, there's so many other factors that are going to go, in, go into it. I mean, if Kamala Harris uh, doesn't do well uh, in Iowa and New Hampshire, she, then that's probably not going to matter. Right. She may be out of the race by Nevada, just as some of these others might be. But 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 we're also tracking other kinds of things. And I want to talk more generally about 2020. And the other great factor here in a caucus state especially is who's doing well on the ground. That is, who has the biggest staff, who is organized well. And and, and do we still think, as as we're recording this podcast toward the end, end, end of the week, that, that Elizabeth Warren still has the best ground forces? And who, who is catching up? Who's doing well as well? Yes, I think it's been really interesting to see. Um, you know, from what I've heard, she, you know, she, like we've talked about before in this podcast, she got on the ground early. She has a, a significant team, you know, and, and that's not going to go away even as these other folks start to catch up. Right. Um, I think what's been really interesting for me to see is the very quick um, ramp up of Mayor Pete, uh, Pete Buttigieg, his team in Nevada. You know, his team really only got on the ground here over the summer, but they've staffed up significantly. I think they're around 30 or more than 30 now. Their goal is to open 10 offices across the state. They're well on their way there by mid-October. Um, so they've gone from from zero to 60 very, very quickly. And so I think the thing that I'm going to be keeping an eye on is, OK, now that folks are catching up, they, they may start to have more similar similar staff sizes, but are the same relationships there, right? Right. The thing with Elizabeth Warren landing on the ground early, her team was able to build these relationships and, you know, lay the groundwork. And even if you're able to hire up quickly, does that have the same impact as getting on the ground early does? The Democrats this week uh, have tried to create a lot of energy and coverage uh, around uh, the announcement of, of, of these early voting caucus sites. Uh, we were talking about this earlier offline, Megan, but this is an organizing exercise for the state Democrats, really. The reason that we've kept the caucus is so they can register a whole bunch uh, of voters. There are a lot of early voting caucus sites, are there not? Yeah, there are a lot. Yeah, it's um, a little over 70 voting sites across the state. And, you know, there's obviously a ton in Clark County but they've chosen spots like the Eureka Opera House and there's one in Wadsworth at the community center. I mean, they, they've really spread these out across the state to make it accessible for folks even in the rural communities. Um, but I think we're all waiting to see how, how this early voting process exactly works. We've never had an early voting process in the caucus. So no one has any idea what turnout will be like. Obviously, Nevadans have proven that they really like to early vote during regular elections. Right. So I think the question will be, how does that translate to a caucus? Um, you know, does it increase overall turnout in the caucus? The fact that folks now don't have to show up at this appointed time on, on a Saturday to caucus, um, they now have flexibility to go over the span of, of four days and they can they can choose where they want to go to. Well, Megan, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, our, our new tracker gets a lot of attention. I hope anybody listening will 
uh, take a look at it. Tell, tell your friends and then tweet at us at, at, at the NV Indy and let us know what, what, what you think of it. Megan, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. All right, Jacob, how's it going? It's going well. Good. So you had a story a couple weeks ago on automation. The, the headline read, as more jobs are automated, Las Vegas set to be the center stage for economic shifts. Can you kind of explain to me, you know, what, what the story is about? And I mean, let's just start with the headline, right? Yeah, so Las Vegas is an interesting city if you look at it as an economy, right? So much of it is built on the service industry and tourism. And really, that's one of the number one reasons why we see this sort of focus as the honestly the entire world economy undergoes what economists are calling the the fourth industrial revolution in this proliferation of not only new machines into the workplace but AI you know how is that going to change the economy and with Las Vegas there are a lot of little things that are going to affect the service economy specifically that are going to pro- proliferate sooner rather than later and really that's going to put a squeeze on Las Vegas. When I say it's going to be the center, there have been several studies about this and there's there's lots of different data and projections and you know they are only projections. However, if we look at a worst case scenario, something like 65% of jobs in Las Vegas are automatable. And so that is more than anywhere else in the country. There are some places in California and Texas, El Paso, I believe, Fresno may be on that list as well. So it's not the only one with sort of a high percentage, but it's up there. And a lot of that has to do with the service industry and and the way that the Las Vegas economy is almost in a way that, say, the Reno economy isn't singularly reliant on say casinos and tourism and all of all of the things that go into the to, into the strip really you said 60% of the jobs are are automatable what 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 kind of jobs are we looking at here like are we looking at um, check out check out people at stores. Are we looking at like maids in the hotel rooms? Like, wh- where does it stop and where does it begin? So this is really this is a really interesting question, honestly, because this is what makes this industrial revolution, quote unquote, different than the ones in the past is the use of AI. So certainly there are certain machines that are going to replace people. Right? You look at the proliferation of self checkout, even as a, a simple step forward. It doesn't feel like automation, but it is. And you see, uh, say, the proliferation of kiosks everywhere from. McDonald's to McCarran Airport to everywhere you go now has a kiosk. So you you no longer have to interact with a human. Are there humans still working there? Yes. But this is what we talk about when there's a certain percent of jobs that are now automatable, right? Or if you're working at a cashier, that job is automatable. Now, that is only a portion of this problem, though, because there are many, many more jobs that are only partially automatable. And that's where AI comes into this, mostly, where you have sophisticated computer programs that are replacing um, both grunt work, say you're an accountant and right, so much of your job is plugging in numbers, right? No longer five years from now even or, or no longer a year from now, right? It sort of depends on the pace of change. But if you're an accountant, if you're a paralegal, if you're doing any kind of clerk work, if, if a lot of your job is basic research, so much of that will be simplified by this proliferation of AI. And so maybe some jobs don't go away entirely, right? No one's going to get rid of doctors. But now doctors can use telemedicine in a way they couldn't five years ago and say five years from now. And that's going to fundamentally change the entire economy. And so when we say things are automatable, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go away entirely, right? Like a robot's not going to take your job because that's not how it works anymore. But we're going to see AI and robots make jobs simpler. And perhaps now the job of one person or the job of three people can be the job of one person. And, and so that's part of the concern that's built into these economic changes. What, what does the automation 
look like though? Like, I mean, you, you talk about AI, right? There's not like a, a ro- like there's not like a little robot man running around the store like checking you out. What what is? It's just it, there's kiosks, but what else are we looking at? Is it a lot of it just computer programs? Yeah, so much so much of it, and so much of the changes that we're going to see are computer programs, and and that's sort of what makes it uh, uh, not invisible. But there are several studies, I believe, from Pew and Gallup, that basically show that uh, very few Americans, less than twenty five percent, consider automation a threat to their job. When if you look at the alternative data that some somewhere between 38 and 65% of jobs are automatable, obviously those two lines are not crossing each other. And mm-hmm. I think the, the answer to that lies somewhere along the lines of this automation is not visible in a way that factories were, right? Moving from farming to the factory feels a lot different than moving or even moving from, you know, people working at assembly line to robots working at assembly line. That's so much more visible than I'm going to use this software to do this thing, right? And you can even look at this at the way, look at tax software, right? So much of what TurboTax does for you, that was done by a tax preparer. And certainly there are still tax preparers. But how many more less do we have today than we did 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago? Because of stuff like TurboTax. I mean, it's, it's like the – there's no physical uh, – a computer program isn't like a physical entity in our world, right? It's just kind of this amorphous concept. Almost. Exactly. Your job's not going to be taken by a, a Jim Bob robot. It's going to be – you know, yeah, it's going to be a nameless, faceless computer program. Okay. So you mentioned that the service industry are, – are the, the unions and the casinos preparing for these changes that the service industry might face from automation? So that's actually very interesting because the answer is yes. The, they're, they're already preparing for changes that both sides see coming. So in 2018, the culinary union in Las Vegas negotiated a new long-term deal with uh, strip casinos. And part of that deal was certain protections that the culinary union enshrined in this contract that basically ensured there was a – period of readjustment time and uh, that if XYZ job was going to be replaced by automation, that whoever was being replaced had had six months in advance notice. And not only that, if there were jobs available on said automation, right, if it is a robot, there would be free training to learn how to how to work those jobs, right? And they can apply to those jobs. Basically ensuring that there is a training structure, right? Oh, these these jobs will be gone, but there will be new jobs and I can be trained on that. And or there is time, right? I know my job is going to be gone in six months. I have time to find a new one. Um, so that's where we're at right now. What it means though is that this this is sort of a, a watershed moment because it means that it's part of the conversation, right? Now that we're starting to talk about automation and that these two – I mean you've got a major union and major gaming companies talking about automation. They're not going to stop talking about automation. So that's going to be part of the conversation. But there has been a very noted criticism and you see this from the campaign of presidential candidate Andrew Yang who has railed against automation his entire time in, in the Democratic primary that – Government retraining programs and retraining programs, generally speaking, do not work. And so there is a lingering question over what is the effectiveness of such programs. And I think because this contract is so recent and really we've seen very few jobs really affected by it so far that we'll need to wait and see to to see really how this issue evolves over the next 10 years. In the story, you talk about how Las Vegas is more vulnerable than other cities. Why is Las Vegas more vulnerable? So a lot of that has to do with the service industry, right? So be, because let's look at let's look at MGM. So over this summer, MGM resorts replaced a lot of their back of house bartenders with drink machines. Now these aren't literal robots serving and mixing drinks. It looks like you what you would see at a movie theater, right? Those big red Coke machines where you you have the screen and you choose what 
whatever of 64 different flavors of soda you want. That's what it is. And so all those drinks being served to gamblers on the floor, being served by the cocktail waitresses, that the, that's automated now. And so that's the kind of job, right, like some machine for much, much less money can do the same job. And so at MGM Resorts, I think all but two or three of their resorts ended up installing these drink machines in the back of house. And uh, it was – I don't know if they've released the exact number of jobs that were lost because of this, but it was on the it was on the order of several hundred. And it was certainly a concern of the culinary union and of MGM. I mean everyone was cognizant of the fact that people are losing these jobs because we're installing drink machines. But but that's the kind of change we're going to see in Las Vegas specifically. Now, the thing is, is not everyone's going to lose their job because so much of what it is and why a lot of economists actually see automation as a net good is so much productivity will be produced by this melding of human and machine that we're actually going to see more efficient employees in the future. The problem is, is people have to be retrained, right? Because some skills simply aren't going to be useful 10 years from now, uh, or, or at least as much as they are now. And so that's the question, right? To what degree can people shift in the next 10 to 15 years to adjust to this new economy? And some people think that it's fine, like people will make the shift. And honestly, a lot of people have the means to make the shift. It doesn't necessarily mean going back to school. It means just getting the training to do the thing. But some people worry that, you know, a lot the, the, the people who will be most affected by this, right, because what kind of person is already working in the service industry, these are the people who may have the least means to adjust to these changes, right? If you're already working on the casino floor, do you have the money to go back to college and learn to do something else, right? And so those are the questions that are going to, to persist as these changes happen. What are the politics and policies behind automation? Are any, are any of the, 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 the state politicians talking about this? Are they concerned about it? So it's really operated in the background because automation itself is such a huge issue and it affects many, many industries because it's not just machines or machine learning. It's AI, right? So it's doctors and lawyers and and journalists even. I mean there are news stories that can be aggregated and written by sophisticated computer programs, right? It's no longer just rote or menial tasks that are being performed by computers. It's more and more complex mental patterns, behaviors, and tasks that are being executed. And that's only going to get more and more advanced as time goes on. And so right now, we really haven't seen a lot because, like I said earlier, there we have polling that people really don't think about it. From the data we have, fewer than a quarter of Americans actually think about automation as some some kind of damaging prospect for their future. And for a lot of Americans, it isn't. I mean, we should be honest about the benefits here because there are benefits to automation. But in in the year 2019, there's there's very little outside of really just Yang, as I said, sort of banging the automation drum. What are those benefits that we see? It's it's about efficiency. It's productivity. It's it's you know there are so many things you can do with the aid of a robot or a computer that you couldn't do before. That you could do faster or with fewer people or safer. I mean, you look at something as simple as trucking, right? If you have an automated truck system that actually works, right, and is safe, then you increase safety, you increase efficiency, and it's great. But that is an entire industry filled with people whose only job is trucking. And now you have to retrain them. 
Are they mechanics now? Do they work on the trucks? Do they help service the automated driving systems? Mm-hmm. We don't know the answer to that yet. And as far as I know, at least in my reporting, we th- there aren't a ton of answers because we're not really there yet. And that's really part of the equation. So many of these things are hypotheticals, but they're very close hypotheticals. It's just so – it's so tough to say because right now, obviously, it's not part of the conversation. But we see the contract and I think that contract is indicative of it's on people's minds. And as it's on the minds of the movers and shakers in the union and in the casinos, it won't be long before politicians in Carson City and even beyond, right, in this this national conversation are going to start looking at automation as – not even a net good or bad, right? There's no value judgment here. It's just it is a change in the economy and how do we address it? So, somewhat like globalization, right? Okay. So uh, you said that robots could become journalists. Are you worried about a robot taking your job, Jacob? <laughs> uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> what about uh, can we replace the politicians with robots? When is that going to happen? Oh, that would be fun, yeah. well, wouldn't it? <laughs> All right, Jacob. Well, thank you so much for being on this week. Oh, thank you. All right, cool. So now we are here at the the end of the podcast, the fun segment, and we are. This is a big segment. I don't think we've ever had four indie, uh, you know, employees all in one segment. So we've got John, and Jacob, and Megan. What's going on? Not much. Hi, Jacob. Happy to be Hello. here. Living the life. Yeah. I mean, hi, Joey. And Jacob oh. and, Mes- and Megan. Hi, hi everyone. <laughs> hello. So Megan. I tried to say hello to everybody. It didn't work. <laughs> so we want to have a segment where we kind of talk about some media stuff that we've been checking out recently, either watching a movie or a TV show or reading a book. Or Megan, you said you've recently been playing a video game that you really like. So, yeah. uh, and Jacob and I have also played this game. What is it? Well, so the way this happened was you were like, Megan, can you talk about a book on the podcast? And I was like, I haven't read a book in a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. but I've been playing a video <laughs> game for way too many hours on end. So fortunately, I don't have something highbrow for you. But I've been playing this video game, Stardew, which I understand is a very old game, but I've just discovered it. Um, and I've been having a great time playing it. So Stardew's not, is not that old. How long? It's it, kind of old, though. A couple like of years? Two years, three okay. years, something like that. But like that's pretty old in video game years. Sure. Yeah. John, have have you heard of this game? Uh, I have not. I'm very, very <laughs> eager to hear what it's all about. Do you want me to tell you the premise? I think explaining the premise to John is going to blow his mind, and I think you should explain the premise. <laughs> He's going to be like, this is so dumb. Mm. Okay, the premise is you're, I don't know, you're like a farmer, and you have a house, and it's like your uncle or your grandpa. Someone's given you this house, mm-hmm. um, and you live in this town, and basically, <laughs> sounds so dumb explaining mm-hmm. it. You um, you go and you, you get to like plant seeds in your in your little yard area. You get to go chop down trees. You grow your plants. It takes a certain number of day for your plants to grow. There's like mines. You can go explore the mines and like gather. Uh, coal and copper and iron. Then there's villagers, and you go talk to the villagers and like make friends with them. Um, and then the seasons pass. There's twenty in your face. <laughs> right, I'll post. I'll post a photo on our Instagram. Of John's I, I, but face. I don't. I don't understand. What yeah. is the name of this game? It's called Stardew Valley. Oh, Stardew Valley. Stardew Valley. Yeah. That is where the farm is. Yeah. I yeah. Guess, yeah. And, and do you, you get do you get points for amassing friends you, if you're nice to the villagers? No. How does this work? Well, so you get you get money um, through farming, and uh, then they'll give you gifts. They'll give you recipes. Uh, um, you're just like living life on the farm in the town, you know, doing just, your thing. I think I think what people like about it is it's just kind of this. Uh, 
you know, like, day-to-day life is really hectic nowadays, and I think this game is just, like, this idyllic little village where yeah. you just become a farmer. Yeah, Not only this, though. You fight the man in this game, Joey. I think oh, you're leaving out yeah, this yeah, perspective. The, the Jojo Mart. Okay, explain yes. the Jojo Mart. <laughs> there is a Walmart analog Jojo Mart who is trying to run all of the local villagers out of business yeah. by being the one-to, one-stop, or go-to one-stop shop in mm-hmm. town. Yeah. And so you, the plucky young farmer, must run them out of business. Yeah. You get to restore the community center and bring it to its former glory yeah. by collecting all these items. And so Jacob, by, <laughs> Jacob, by making the uh, Walmart analogy, has now cost us any chance of having Walmart ever be a donor to the Indies. There goes a sponsor. But it sounds like there's – is this an actual character or a, or a corporation or what, what is it? Well, it's a fictional corporation. Yeah. It's a corporation. But it's an evil corporation. Yeah, yeah. And, and that, that's redundant, is it not? <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, and there's, there's seasons. So there are 28 days in each season. So you get to go through all the seasons and there's different music for each season and there are different like things you can forage for depending on what season it is it's very exciting yes yeah so john do you think you're going to play this game uh, <laughs> there's zero chance i'm going to play this game i actually haven't played video games uh, in many years i used to be uh, like and this is well before any of you were born i was like addicted to pac-man and and, and, and games like that back before and then once video games started to be 3d i just i couldn't figure it out i didn't know what the hell was going on so, did you did you have like a nes or an SNES, like the old nintendo systems did you uh, have either of those um uh, i don't remember to be honest with you Okay. I, re- I remember the first video game I ever played was a game called Pong. Yeah. yeah. Right? Which was, that and, is the first video yeah, game. Yeah, it was the first video game, but I never advanced much. But the thing about that you guys are talking about here, which is true, and Megan alludes, they're, they're, they're still just great escapes, right? I mean, they're just, you know, all of us work super hard. It's just nice to have something mindless to do. Not that it's mindless or it doesn't take skill. I don't want to say no, that's no, it's, that. No, it's mindless. It's great. <laughs> I have right? no But that's shame great. I mean, that. it's, it's, the same, it's the same principle as just, you know, watching something stupid on TV or something something right you yeah. just lose yourself yeah so what may appeal about this game to you john is that it's it's made in a way a visual way that's supposed to harken back to old video games uh-huh. it's all it's 2d pi- pixelated yeah, in 2d pixel. oh it is it is yeah. yeah so it's captured like old people like me is what you're saying yeah. well, maybe yeah, hopefully it could. Yeah, it could. that's very interesting <laughs> so maybe we can't convince you to play it but maybe sometime on the podcast in the future we'll get you to yeah. play a pong Ooh, pong competition with us or, or i'll something. bring my yeah. switch we can make john play games yes i would love Exciting. it all right cool Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Indie Matters. Make sure to tell your friends, family, enemies, frenemies, and your store checkout clerks about us and tell them to rate and review us wherever they listen to podcasts, whether that's Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever else. If you have criticism, comments, or praise, you can email me at joey at theenvyindie.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, you can email editors at theenvyindie.com. If you're not yet donating and would like to support our expedition into the great unknown of nonprofit journalism, you can click the Support Our Work button on our site. I'd like to thank John Jacob, Jingleheimer Schmidt, and Megan for being on this week. I'd also like to thank the always lovely folks over at KUNV who help us record quality sound in Las Vegas, Sam, Kevin, and Dave, and the people over at KUNR Reno Public Radio, Paul and Michelle. Our original theme song is by People With Bodies, and you can find more of their stuff on Spotify. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, and we'll talk to you next week.